0: Leading the way with Dr. Michael Youssef, equipping us to grow into a deeper walk with Christ. Part of Night Vision each weeknight. Details at vision.org.au. Audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. The Roman historian Tacitus tells us that Jesus was crucified and scourged under Pontius Pilate. Josephus, the Hebrew historian, tells us the same. Plenty of the Younger, years later, in a document, writes about the crucifixion of Jesus under Pontius Pilate. This is not a myth or legend we're talking about, folks. This is historical fact as much as Napoleon is historical fact. Today. 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 With Jeff Vines, pastor, apologist, and Bible teacher. Hello and welcome to Today with Jeff Vines. Today we'll continue on the way to the cross. For our sake, Jesus suffered immensely for a prolonged period before he was eventually crucified. These true events were recorded not only in the Bible, but also in historical records about Roman activity. This is Today with Jeff Vines as we continue on the way to the cross. Luke tells us that Pilate released Jesus to the Roman Praetorian guard, the cohort. That 600 men, 600 men take Jesus. I think Pilate knew what was going to happen next. He's going to have him scourged and then he's going to be nailed to a, a tree. He's going to be crucified. Now, I don't want you to miss what I'm about to do. I want you to make sure you grasp this and I want you to grapple with it for a very long time. Because Pilate, I'm sure when he caught a glance of Jesus, and they looked at each other. As Jesus marches away into the will of the Father, I'm sure Pilate, maybe for the first time, it begins to dawn on him what he had just done in giving over an innocent man to an angry mob. Here's what they did. They would have tied Jesus to a stump in the ground. And in that stump, jutting out about three feet, they take both Jesus' hands, and he kneels down on two knees, and they tie his arms around this stump that's jutting out of the ground. They take the first whip. In the Bible, it's translated scourging. The word is lao, which I'm sorry, and I don't mean to be crass, and it might be somewhat humorous just for a split second, but it's the same word from which we get our English word, flagellants, because it means open bowel. It was translated that way because when you were scourged, Eusebius, the first century historian, tells us, that the veins and sinews and the bow bow was opened to exposure because they would put Jesus onto the ground, tying him to the stump jutting out of the ground. And then the Roman lictor with that whip of these metal balls that that were designed when thrashed upon Jesus' back to provide deep gaping holes into his back and to bruise severely his back. Some of you have read in history where you only received 39 lashes. That's a misnomer. The Romans had the freedom to whip you until they were tired of whipping you. And they often got way past 39 lashes. And they would kind of bring that whip down on the body of Jesus. That hard, hard metal would go in his back between the ribs. It would provide these gaping holes. Blood would ooze out, but basically the first whip was just to bruise you, bruise you so badly. Now remember, it's after 24 hours, 48 hours now of hematidrosis where the skin is incredibly sensitive to touch. And so they bring that, that whip on the back of Jesus. After they've done that for a while, and the entire back has been bruised, they will untie one hand of Jesus, and they will open him up so that his chest and stomach area, so that they are exposed. And then they will bring that same whip even harder down on those areas to have the bruising on the chest and on the abdominal area. After they've done that, and after the ridicule, 600 men, a Praetorian guard surrounding Jesus, they will then take the second whip. The second whip has a longer shaft. The leather strands are about six to eight inches longer than the ones you see here. And they complete themselves in a type of leather socket into which is inserted chips of sharp bone. These bones are designed that when the Roman lictor came back on the back of Jesus, that the bones would stick into the skin and freeze and then extract flesh as it's pulled away. And they bruise him on the back repeatedly. And then on the front, they tie him again. They extract flesh from his back. Then they untie him again. They extract flesh from the front and from the abdominal area. And then through the legs and the back of the legs until literally Jesus' entire bodily makeup becomes that of, it looks like sliced hamburger meat. It's just all torn and ripped and there are deep holes. That's why the first century Stoic Seneca said it would be better to commit suicide than to go through this punishment and encourage people that when you're in prison waiting the scourge, it is best to take your own life. And so Jesus is scourged by the Romans. It would have taken about five to six hours. There would be blood spilled everywhere, but he's still alive. What happens when you're scourged, you do go into hypovolemic shock. Again, hypo, low, volume, emic blood. And then the heart speeds up. It starts trying to pump blood to the places for healing, but there's no blood to be found. And so it it then converts to the antithesis of that, whereby there is a, a slowing down of the heart rate almost to a dead stop, not quite. Lightheadedness, fainting, weakness. And then the kidneys themselves stop producing urine so it can maintain the volume that the body has left. And then there's an incredible desire for water, thirst, as if you'd been in the desert for weeks. Jesus is weak. His skin is sensitive to touch still. He is bleeding all over. He's been wounded. There are gaping holes in his flesh. And then the Bible tells us, according to the historian, not only Luke, but also to Josephus, who is not a believer, but is a historian of the first century, that they marched Jesus over, back to the Praetorian guard. And at this point, they begin to blaspheme and treat him mockingly as if he is Caesar. And so they take the crown, the laurel wreath that Caesar would wear in celebration, and they make a crown of thorns consisting of two-inch barbed quills that you find in and around Jerusalem today. They're very sharp on the end, and they slam this down on Jesus' head so that these quills go deeper into his skull. Now there's blood on his head and on his face. And then they take a robe that is called a clamus. And the robe is heavy. It's a Roman robe. It's purple to mock royalty. But it's very heavy, very scratchy. And so as Jesus' back and his front and his legs are just incredibly sensitive to touch, as the blood is running down and there's these open, gaping wounds, then the coat is spread around Jesus. And the very fact that that's on his back becomes so painful. And then they take a reed uh, representing this scepter that uh, Caesar would carry around again at festive occasions. And they place a reed in Jesus' hand and then they bow down and they say, hail King of the Jews. And then they stand up, each one taking turn. Who knows if 600 or if two or three, who knows really, but they take turns grabbing the reed out of Jesus' hand and blasting it down on his head so that the crown of thorns go deeper into his skull. And then they take Jesus and they give him a patibulum. It is a 200 pound block of wood. And they stretch him out and they tie him on each side to carry this beam for over a mile and a half up to Golgotha where they're going to crucify him. As Jesus is carrying this cross, he's lost so much blood. You don't find this very often in Roman history. Scourging is called halfway death. Indeed, people do die from it. But Jesus is still alive and he's carrying this cross. But the Romans wanted to keep you alive as long as they possibly could because they wanted the public to hear the screams when they drive those spikes into your hands as a verbal and audio reminder of what happens to you if you violate Rome or if you commit treason against the Romans. And so a Roman guard evidently saw that Jesus was near death and was gonna die of all the blood loss. Again, enter into hypovolemic shock. And so there's a man over, by the way, we don't know much about him, we just know his name is Simon of Cyrene from Northern Africa. And the Roman guard enforces this guy to carry Jesus' cross on his behalf so that Jesus will still be alive when they get to Golgotha. It works. Jesus is still alive. Now before I explain to you what happened on the cross, I want to say two things. Number one, I don't need the Bible to tell me the information I'm giving you now. You know that, right? Roman centurions, the Roman historian Tacitus tells us that Jesus was crucified and scourged under Pontius Pilate. Josephus, the Hebrew historian, tells us the same. Pliny the younger years later in a document writes about the crucifixion of Jesus under Pontius Pilate. This is not a myth or legend we're talking about, folks. This is historical fact as much as Napoleon is historical fact. And so Jesus makes it to Golgotha they'll lay him down horizontally. They will dislocate both his shoulders. They will pull them out of socket, six to eight inches each on each side. That in itself is so painful on top of everything else. After they've done that, they will take a nail that looks a lot like this. It's not exact, the thickness is similar, but it doesn't count down to this point. It's tapered to a sharp point in the end. The Roman lictor will take this nail and he will place it here, not here. He will place it here so that when it goes in, it will be located just under the tarsal bone. If you nail Jesus to the tree here, as soon as he is hoisted up on the tree, it's going to tear his flesh and he's going to fall off the cross. We know from archaeological digs that you crucify just below the tarsal bone, and it crushes the median nerve as it goes in. It's the most painful thing really ever known to man. We call it hitting your funny bone, but in reality, it's not really that funny. And imagine somebody taking a pair of pliers and squeezing right there and just keeping it there because the median nerve is a nerve that runs throughout the body, and when you crush it and remains crushed, the pain is relentless they want to hear you scream and you do as the Roman soldier brings the hammer down five to ten times until the nail is securely in place and then he does the other wrist and then not in the feet but in the ankles above the bones as he crushes the nerves the bones the Indians and you better believe that Jesus would have cried out in a loud voice Now, here's a question I have for you. In a radio debate, a man by the name of Leighton Smith asked me an important question. He said, Jeff, if I'm to believe your account of what Jesus endured, if I'm to believe the biblical account, there's no way any man could suffer that much and still be alive by the time he got to the cross. My response was, wait a minute, you're taking out a very important aspect here. Isn't it true that there's a spiritual battle going on whereby If Satan could kill Jesus before he got to the cross, then all prophecy would be ruined and everything would come to an end. So you have Satan trying to kill Jesus before he gets to the cross. You have God keeping his son alive. It may be true that Jesus died four or five deaths, that he should have died, but he didn't because God kept him alive till he got to that cross that all prophecy might be fulfilled so Jesus is nailed to the tree, both shoulders dislocated. He's losing a lot of blood. It's seeping out slowly. Death is coming. It's imminent. When they hoist the cross up on the vertical beam, it drops three feet into the ground with a thud and the flesh literally tears where the nails are in the feet and the wrists. But when you're crucified, you don't die necessarily of loss of blood. That might be part of it. But Jesus dies from asphyxiation because he's nailed and he's stretched to such a degree that he's in an inhaled position. And the only way you can breathe then is as your knees are bent on the cross to push yourself up to exhale and to get your next breath. And Jesus, with his back all scarred, continues to press himself up with the splinters of the wooden cross digging deeper into his back. You see, the thing about crucifixion is every other form of capital punishment is carefully calculated. Doctors are there. It's either by an injection or by a surge of electricity. It's over quickly. It's documented. Predictable. But everything we know in roman history of crucifixion you could have been on the cross from three to six to nine hours trying to get your next breath and your next breath again the pain was so horrible when they nailed jesus to the cross we get that word english word excruciating x out of cruciating the cross So a word evolves into our English word strictly because there was no other word to explain the pain endured when you're nailed to a tree. And yet even when Jesus dies, he shows us how to live, right? Because his attention is not on himself. It's on this thief over here who says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus says, done. He says, John, behold your mother. Mother, behold your son. He wants to make sure his mother is taken care of now that he's gone. And to all of us, he says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. But in the midst of that, he cries out to his father, why have you left me? Feeling the separation from his dad for the first time to this degree. Dad, where are you? And Jesus would have known when he was close to death, when he could no longer push himself up on the cross and get his next breath. The heart would have started to beat rapidly. Jesus would have known death is near. I have no more strength, no more energy. And he says, it is finished. It's completed. Now, what is interesting about the end of the crucifixion is that Luke is a physician and a historian. And I believe he writes from a physician's point of view. Because when you die of asphyxiation on the cross, fluids rush to surround the membrane of the heart and the lungs. It's called pericardial effusion and pleural effusion. And when the Roman came up to pierce Jesus in the side, he didn't do it to kill him. He, He did it to make sure Jesus was dead. And when he removed his spear, what came out? Blood and water from the fluid surrounding the membrane of the heart and lungs. Why? Why'd he do it? (laughs) Why? Documented historical fact, this man, Jesus from Nazareth, who committed no crime. It just loved all people. Why do you do it? Why why not just call the 10,000 angels down and show everybody who's boss? Why? Why does a father, albeit God the father, not rescue his son? What father in the room would not be close to a son or a daughter who was dying and you had the power to rescue and to save and you just turned your back and walked away? Why? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. He did it because he loves you. You know that, right? He loves you. Your picture is in his wallet and on his refrigerator. (laughs) He looks into your eyes, he loves you. You say, well Jeff, how does that show that he loves me? Because we have such a low view of the holiness of God. God is totally holy and pure. We would expect that of God. He doesn't make moral mistakes. And part of that essence of God requires that he separate himself from all known sin. In the same way that you as a human, you have to eat. It's part of your human essence. You have to eat to live. God, as part of his ontological essence or his nature, must separate himself from sin to be God. But that puts you and me in a bad position because that means we're the object of his wrath. But he doesn't want us to be. He wants us to be the objects of his love. But how can he do both? He can't turn his head away from your sin. It's gotta be dealt with. Folks, how profound is it? How great is this? The the genius in the mind of God to say, how can I prove to these creatures that I love them? The greatest love in the human experience is paternal love, maternal love. Father for a daughter, a son, a mother for her child. No greater love. So God says, I'm going to show them that I love them by giving my son. And instead of rescuing him, I'm going to turn away. Because if Jesus can make it to the cross, then they'll make it. The Hebrew writer tells us that Jesus endured the shame, the punishment, because he knew what was on the other side, the glory of you and me. When I was in New Zealand, I was teaching at a Bible college for the first year. Trevor Yaxley, the president of the college, came to me one day and said, Jeff, we really appreciate what you're doing here with our students. Man, we hope you can stay as long as you can, but I have something I want you to know about me. Trevor told me, a godly man, Trevor told me that he was on his way into Auckland one day on Highway 1. There was an accident. Cars were lined up. And he was just upset because he was inconvenienced. But as he got to the car, he recognized it was his own son. And his son had been killed in this accident. Trevor told me the thoughts that came across his mind and he kept saying, only if I was there, if I could have been there to stop it. But God was there. He was right there and he didn't stop it. Because he loves you. Do do you see that? And every time you have a bad week or a bad year or maybe even a bad life, God wants you to remember that. That when you stand up and say, God, you hate me. You don't love me because my life is tough. God says, wait a minute. Wait a minute. I've already proven. I love you. And although you may not understand it, I love you. And every time we think of the cross, it's a graphic reminder of the evil of our sin. A graphic reminder of how deep that is in the heart of God. But yet what he was willing to do to punish his own son on our behalf. Yeah. That's why I'm a Christian. Nobody else offers me a sin bearer. Nobody else takes away my sin. Everybody else tells me I gotta be good and then might, maybe I might be accepted. This guy here, he tells me, No, Jeff, I've forgiven you on the basis of what my son did on your behalf. D. L. Moody was the great illustrator, great American preacher. His little girl looked up to him one time and said, Daddy, why did Jesus have to die? And D.L. Moody, the great illustrator, said to his daughter, sweetheart, you see that truck over there? Would you rather be run over by that truck or the shadow of that truck? This little girl looked up and said, daddy, why the shadow of the truck? Because that way it wouldn't hurt so much. He said to his daughter, Jesus had to die so that the truck of God's justice would not go over us, but only the shadow. Jesus was punished on your behalf and make no mistake, you deserve it. But that punishment was exacted on his son, the ultimate, ultimate form of love so that you and I can live in the shadow of the cross. And although there might be pain and suffering and some of the evil that is, a re- that is really a, a result of sin in this world, we never have to go to the cross though. We live forever in eternity with God. Why does he do it? Man, he loves you. He loves you. And he will always love you. Father, I am grateful for the power of the cross. We are thankful for an image that we as Christians wear and we bear. Father, we don't wear a, a little, tiny little tomb or a little necklace with 12 little men, we wear a cross because we know it is at the cross where our entire eternity was changed. And no matter what happens in the here and now, no matter what happens in the here and now, we know that our greatest need has been met. We have been forgiven. We have been loved and continue to be loved by you. And because of that, we can live in the here and now with great hope and great anxiety for the future. When we will be with you, we pray in gratitude and with a thankful heart, in Jesus' name, Amen. You've been listening to Today with Jeff Vines. Next time, we'll bring you a new message from Pastor Jeff. You can listen to more messages like this. Just search for Today with Jeff Vines wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, you make me-